0: Greetings, dear listeners. Great episode this week with our old friend Damon Linker. Damon, who has an excellent sub-stack called Eyes on the Right and a must-listen-to podcast over at The Bulwark, recently wrote a piece arguing that Shadi has been insufficiently worried about democratic decline. As you can imagine, it was a very lively discussion. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. Support our work and get access to bonus episodes as we grow the site into a bigger community. On to the show. Yeah, I mean... Damir, get us going. So I mean, yeah, I guess to get us going, Damon. Um, you know, I, I I suggested to Shadi we have you on um, over a Twitter exchange that I think happened before you and Shadi got into you know your back and forth about about um, about democracy panic and uh, you know the the uses and abuses thereof. Um, it was it was the, the conversation you and I were having, or you were having, and then I just sort of jumped in, as one does on Twitter, was about DeSantis and the threat he presents. Um, I forget who it was. Uh, someone had published a piece of like why DeSantis is going to be worse than Trump or just as bad, if not worse than Trump. And then we, there was a whole sort of back and forth around that. Um, I guess maybe the way to kick this off, though, is to just maybe take a step back before diving into DeSantis and, um, you know... The specifics of Shadi's stance and his criticisms of all of this and just get your sense um about give us a t- take the temperature of the country um how worried are you were you relieved by the elections um have you been disquieted since looking at the news watching sort of the developments um, where are we uh as a country politically
1: yeah, uh, good question. And as always, it's it's a complicated picture, at least as usual for me. Um, I guess I, I was I I was encouraged by the election because uh, Republicans were not rewarded for some of their intransigence and uh, the the kind of. The acting out that we've seen from them since uh, Trump's loss and January 6th. So, I, I, you know, the looking at, as the political scientists say, the thermostatic. Uh, tendencies in in elections in this country, you would have expected the Republicans to do a little better than they did. They didn't do terribly. They did uh, win more votes for the House, for instance, than Democrats. But uh, you would have expected, with the thermostatic considerations of the out party from whoever holds the White House, tending to gain seats, combined with, you know, the highest inflation in 40 years and, uh, uh high gas prices in particular um and and various other things uh, but very low approval rating uh f- for Biden uh heading into the election you put it all together and you would have expected the Republicans to maybe pick up 30 or 40 seats in the house and they picked up you know a, a cup a dozen or so so uh that was a disappointment to them and on the whole I I think I approve of that disappointment and the lesson that one would hope Uh, It uh, would be carried over to them. More broadly, um, I'm a little less worried now than I was uh, at, at previous moments over, say, the last six to seven years. There are a few reasons for that. One, Trump finally does seem a little bit to be weakening. Part of that is his own kind of age and Lack of energy, it seems, and quick-wittedness, his own kind of demonic um, uh, charisma seems to have waned somewhat, uh, which I think is good uh, as we head into 2024. Um, I would much prefer to see DeSantis or really anybody else be the Republican nominee in 2024, so that it's a good sign of is weakening um and on the whole, the Democrats I think have governed fairly well over the last couple of years. I very much approve of Biden's handling of uh the Ukraine crisis and war with Russia um, I can't really think of any large I have you know various small criticisms of this or that decision along the way but in general I think uh they've they've handled it uh really expertly. Uh, And then domestically, if you look at what ended up passing from out of the House, uh, it was it was some good, solid domestic, center left domestic policy things, Um, not uh, stuff that would have been much more polarizing and uh, left leaning. And that was a product of the. Democrats having a relatively narrow majority in both houses and not being able to get more of what the rep- progressives were clamoring for. And on the whole, given that as, as we, I mean, I was on I was on the pod here uh, a couple of years ago, sometime during the Trump administration, I think, or maybe just after. And I, I know we talked a bit about you know, the fact that I'm more worried, more worried than let me put it this way. I'm worried about Trump's attempt to turn himself into a dictator, but I'm far more worried about the country tearing itself apart in a kind of centrifugal back and forth stress as the pendulum swings from progressive left to reactionary right and back again, and each move is undertaken as if its own side has an overwhelming majority of support when in fact it doesn't the country is deeply divided but it's narrowly divided and because the divides are so deep the the two parties don't govern as if the divide isn't as narrow as it really is so um on the whole, you add everything up over the last couple of years and I'd say, all right, we're steadying a little bit where the swing has narrowed a little bit, despite what we're seeing from the House Republicans and their attempt to kind of pull things very far right. But, you know, what they can actually accomplish until we at least get to the debt default thing later in the year uh, is pretty minimal. Um,
0: OK, so so, Damon, look, um, you know what's interesting about uh the way you talked about that? I mean, I feel like very broadly the three of us are in agreement on the diagnosis no as you put Stop. it there. <laughs> I, I think it's true. But but I it gets it's something I think it, I think I can figure out maybe the way to get at the disagreement. I because I think in the the broader picture, right? And and it, I think the, the interesting part of the agreement is that we are um not just in agreement that we're in agreement, and we most worry about this: the country tearing itself apart. That part, that this kind of it's a self-perpetuating cycle of, uh, you know, indignance, uh, uh, basically, othering, like a, a lack of ability to reach compromise, all the sort of things you sort of need for um, for for democracy. What's interesting, though, is is I guess is I'd ask you is what role does punditry, rhetoric, um, raising the alarm over democracy's demise play in saving us from the worst things that can happen, as opposed to exacerbating the same tendency we're saying that we're all worried about. You know what I'm saying? Because, because, you know, I, I think on the one hand, and I'll let Shadi speak for himself, but as I read Shadi often on these sorts of things, he shares my and presumably your worry that this, this process that we're most worried about of this sort of, um, uh, I don't want to say radicalization, but just sort of catastrophism leads to a kind of democratic decline in and of itself. And so, I mean, when you look back at the elections and look at back at where we are right now, is... Did things work out well because there was adequate catastrophism and efforts to minimize that are misguided because we wouldn't have had good outcomes without that? Or, you know, are these, were these positive outcomes just the result of the fact that we have a successful and healthy democracy on some level? And it's just sort of a phenomenon of that
1: yeah well good good questions and good way of posing them uh and the reason why i know that that's true is because i don't have a pat easy (laughs) way of responding um which means that you've gotten at uh i think a real truth and complication uh or kind of complex dimension of our reality um i guess i would say that uh you know, whenever I do confront a question that leaves me sort of looking at a complexity is to assert that, well, it must be both and, <laughs> as opposed to either or. And I, you know, as I said in, you know, where the background to the conversation is that Shadi had been tweeting some things and wrote uh, some other longer pieces uh, that, that was critical of some of what uh kind of center left media and pundits had been saying about the the danger of of democracy when in fact you know the election turned out okay and you know If you listen to the rhetoric of Joe Biden at his couple of uh, events, though, the one in Philadelphia where, you know, Constitution Hall was all like glowing red and it looked almost like he was at a a satanic meeting and, and he was talking about the imminent end of American democracy. So so vote for me and my party and all the policies that I will now list off. That are supposed to be understood as synonymous with the regime of democracy like that, that I also like, especially when it's Joe Biden saying that, who is the president and is the head of one of the two parties in our system. That made me cringe a a bit for the exact for exactly the reasons that uh, Shadi has been touching on and some of what he's written on this topic, because Um, it's a, I mean, there are two levels here and, and this is something that Americans often have trouble grasping because of the terminology we use for these things. So, you know, we have two parties. One of them is the liberal party and the other one is the conservative or the right-wing populist party now. But then we also talk about how our, our form of government is a liberal democracy. And, and so when Biden comes out, And he starts a speech talking about how the head of the other party, Donald Trump, tried to overturn the last election and had a self-coup. And this is dangerous because the members of his party uh, are affirming that. And the polls show that a lot of members of that party voters believe the election was stolen and believe the lies that he was disseminating to keep himself in power, he's talking about a threat to liberal democracy, the system as a whole that is the structure within which both parties contend for power. But then when he transitions to, so vote for me, and here are all the great policies I've enacted over the last two years, he becomes a liberal Democrat, capital D, meaning he's a member now of his party and he wants his party to win and the other bastards to lose because that's what normal politics is about. And it's that slippage that is dangerous because you and but there's no easy way out of this problem because. It is that most of the danger at a concrete level is coming from one of those parties, namely the Republican Party. And so if you're worried about the threat to the regime, it is more dangerous to vote for the Republican Party because because of, well, we saw what Trump did the last time and the dissemination of lies to justify what he did. Um and and so I don't really see a way out of that. And so I guess the maybe you could say that my position on this kind of what to do is that Biden shouldn't be saying that, what he said. Now, this is a separate question from whether he should say it because it'll be electorally advantageous to him. <laughs> and given the results, maybe it worked. I know a lot of people, a lot of Democrats have sort of responded to critics like like me who who were kind of cringing at this and said ha ha you were wrong it worked see we won but you know when you're talking about a very close election in a million little districts, you know, saying what the one cause is, is going to be a fool's errand. And it's itself part of the political contest to try to establish which cause was the right one, mine or yours. or I'll just jump yeah. in,
0: Damon, just to say one thing, you know, just my experience on that is different because I, I say, you know, and this actually irritates Democrats more, as I say, your president was panic mongering uselessly. You fell for it and you won the election. Bravo, Machiavelli.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it worked. It worked, yeah. whatever it was. Um, so, I mean, I get So as I was about to explain, like my view then is that Biden should not be really saying these things. But Pundits, analysts, intellectuals, people who study politics and try to understand what's going on can and should say it and debate it and get into the into the weeds on it. Because let's be honest, we're not that influential. I mean, the biggest of us is pretty influential at like a several orders of remove. So, like, you know, if Matt Iglesias does a blog post about what should be in the build back better bill and it's read by ron clane and he hands it around the white house the west wing staff and they read it and talk about it and it influences what they say when they go to the hill for debates about what should be in and what shouldn't be in the bill then you could say man in that one substack post had an influence and you can trace it but you know, I have my little substack, and it's it's read by a few thousand people, and uh, you know, I, I, they like it. But like, who are those people? They're not the most influential people in the world. All I've done I, it, it, on the best day is maybe clarified some of their thinking about what's going on in the world, and that's perfectly fine. That's what happens in civil society in a free society. So I say, everyone can say that, and then in between. Biden at one end and little old me at the other end you have someone like Rachel Maddow. She has a big audience. How big? I don't know, about half what Tucker Carlson has. That's that's a pretty big difference between 2 million and 4 million viewers. But even Tucker, you know, people say look at how influential he is and he is, but he's still only watched by 4 million people in a country of 330 million people. So like It's just a big, teeming, noisy country. And for the most part, it's fine for us to debate and warn and cajole and demonize each other um, without worrying that it's going to do any fundamental damage to the regime uh, of liberal democracy. But if Biden does it, that's more worrisome. And... um, and in general i i just think that it's important that those of us who recognize that there is something really pathological about the the, the matches with which some republicans are playing uh that you know i i, I 3 years ago if you had said like we're, you know, we're going to be a country that, that had a self coup attempt. You would have been like, Oh, come on. You're, you're, you're being, you're being ridiculous here. That's that, that happens in the banana republics as we say in our not at all uh, condescending way. Uh, But, you know, Hey, look where the banana republic is now. You know, we, we had our experience of this and uh, you know, Trump hasn't walked it back and um, There are intellectual justifications of that kind of extreme exceptionalist politics where, like, the stakes are so high that it's legitimate to seize power because if the other guys take over, it'll mean the end of all that's good about our country. When you ratchet up the rhetoric that high, <clears throat> you know, the, the stakes the stakes go up with the rhetoric because the danger of it actually be you know spilling into reality and not just being uh, not just being a kind of reality show that I'm living in my head on Twitter. Uh, like now people are actually reading those tweets and you know, buying a ticket to fly to Washington on January 5th so they can be there for the big rally and then then, then march to Capitol Hill and make a bit of a mess. So anyway, I'll stop my blathering with that, I guess. <laughs> well, I just want
2: to make a note that um, many people say, that wisdom of crowds is extremely influential. I'm just telling you what I hear from other people. So I just want Many wanna... people are
1: saying, one might yes, say. Yes, many people are saying, it has been said. It's better to say it like that so it's officially passive voice. So let me, uh,
2: so there's a lot there that I I want to unpack. Maybe I'll just start by saying that, Damon, you wrote a piece that took me to task for my complacency about the threats to democracy. In the nicest of
1: ways. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, like, what
2: I... The reason that it's hard for me to really be critical about the article, because the article starts off on a beautiful note, and that is what lingers in my memory. (laughs) And if I recall, and, you know, sometimes I am susceptible to flattery, so forgive me for that, but the first sentence of your... uh, supposedly well your otherwise critical piece of me was i believe i admire shadi hamid Something that's like that. That's how you or or
1: like, I like
0: him, no, both intellectually, intellectually
1: and personally. No, or...
0: David, Shadi, Shadi, Shadi studied this carefully. He yes, he's mis- memorized stu- he quote He wouldn't misquote phrase. <laughs> to me, to be more exact,
2: you said, and I'm just double checking here, I admire author Shadi Hamid. So those are five <laughs> words that I think are, are beautiful. So, you know, with, with that said, um, let's get to the substance. So, okay. There's a lot I can say, but maybe I'll just start with this. Well, first of all, I've never actually used the word coup in describing the January 6th insurrection. I am comfortable using riot insurrection and any number of other pejorative things. And maybe this is where I start to diverge that I don't see January 6th maybe in the way that others do. It was obviously a very scary day, and it's a day that should you know, um, figure into how we view our recent history. And I think that most Americans should be aware of what happened that day. But when we use words like coup, to me, just based on my experience with actual coups in other parts of the world, that word has a particular con- connotation. It implies usually some involvement of the military of the of the deep state, so to speak, of the judiciary, it tends to be well organized. Uh, to To have a military coup or to attempt one, you have to coordinate with other members of the regime or the opposition to whatever whatever um, government you're trying to overthrow, depending on the case. So those elements are not really present at all in the case of January 6th and maybe that's one reason that i just so i already from there i start to use different words and different terms and those are those matter because i think it does it does suggest that i might be more complacent because i view certain events differently i don't think there was any realistic chance of the insurrection succeeding precisely because it didn't have the buy-in of the military of the judicial branch of even a significant number of republican politicians i mean it's worth remembering that only only seven gop senators voted uh, refused to refuse to certify the election results which is a pretty small number in the end so all of this suggests that there wasn't an actual chance of our government being overthrown. And that's just worth keeping in mind. Now, like just to fast forward because, you know, we don't have to get stuck in the past, I it is true that I don't actually write a lot about how Republicans are really bad and worse than the Democratic Party. That is my view. And I've actually said this on previous episodes, and Demir has actually um, objected. I have never voted for a Republican in my life. And I'm not going to vote for a Republican, even on the local level, for the time being. And my reason is very simple. I have one non-negotiable issue, and that's respecting Democratic outcomes that are not to your liking. And comparatively, there is no doubt that Republicans are worse than Democrats on this one very specific thing. So in that sense... I actually take this very seriously. I think one party is not as committed to procedural democracy as the other. And that's not to say that Democrats are great on this either, but at least they're somewhat better. Now, I actually think that the GOP is worse than the Muslim Brotherhood when it comes to respecting democratic outcomes or any number of far right movements that I've supposedly far right or right wing movements that I've studied elsewhere. Um, I would take the Muslim Brotherhood over the GOP when it comes to procedural democracy any day. Um, you know, I'll just say that. With all of that said, though, I guess, I guess the, my my big issue here is that I don't see any plausible scenario through which, let's say, the midterms had turned out differently. Instead of the GOP gaining around a dozen seats, as you said, Damon, let's say they gained something in the middle between 12 and what we thought they would get like 30. So let's say they had um, a gain of 22 seats. It's unclear to me how that better outcome for Republicans would have actually led to the dismantling of American democracy because that is actually what people were saying because sometimes people say, well, oh, Shadi, we didn't literally mean that there was an imminent threat to democracy. We just meant. There was a threat to democracy in some kind of broader sense, just something to be like worried about. But we didn't think democracy would actually die. But ac- but that is the argument people were making, because when I, you know, looking back at what various folks were saying, they were not just counseling us to be concerned. As, as you said, Damon, Biden actually said that democracy was on the line in a very literal sense. That was the entire thrust of the speech that he made. Uh, five or six days before the midterms. So this was a very serious claim that respectable folks were making on the center left of the political spectrum. But when I play out the scenarios, I don't see any way that even a better result for the Republican Party would have put in motion a series of events that would actually call American democracy into question in some fundamental sense. Because let's say you had four more election deniers who won, um, or even 10. How would that translate? You know, it just, it's, it's, no one's ever really laid out to me what democracy dying in America actually looks like. It's hard for me to conceive of that scenario. And maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit more, because that's where I always hit a kind of brick wall and how I try to, you know, reason some of these arguments out we're also a big country 50 states is chaotic as you mentioned it's a it's um it's an unwieldy unwieldy country so it's not like Hungary where you can actually undermine democracy more effectively because you control the media or it's a more centralized system or um you know and it's also worth remembering that in the US most mainstream institutions are left leaning so there's just a lot of obstacles to republicans actually taking control and overthrowing the system even if they wanted to because they're just it's a very it's a very difficult country to manage and it's unwieldy in a way that most other countries aren't because of our our federal system and lastly i'll just say that a consolidated democracy has never turned into an autocracy. Short of situations of of um, foreign occupation or or wars, it just doesn't happen. The closest case that I can come up with is Hungary. And as you have said in your own writing, Damon, I don't think it's right to call Hungary an autocracy right now. It's maybe moving in an authoritarian direction. There are serious concerns about what the ruling party is doing. But I don't it's not correct if we look at any of the major political indexes to say that Hungary today is an authoritarian regime. It's not quite there yet. So this would be a very rare thing for a democracy as old and consolidated as America's has been to actually make the shift. It would be sort of unprecedented from a historical standpoint. And now the num- it's true that the number of consolidated, consolidated democracies isn't super large, but based on the evidence that we have and based on the history that we've lived, it would be a new thing. And I'm not one to kind of emphasize black, black swans as likely. Yes, black swans can happen. That's why there are, in fact, black swans. But should we actually orient our rhetoric Around something that is actually not very likely to happen, I don't deny that there could be a three percent chance or a six percent chance, but I don't like to write with a mind to under ten percent, you know, likely occurrences. I guess that's and yeah. Anyway, there's a lot there, so I'll just maybe start there. Curious what you think. Yeah. um,
1: Yeah, that was all very good and interesting. I do want to start with the past, with the coup question, um, just because I do think it sets up some of the other things I want to say. I totally understand where you're coming from on that. In fact, immediately after, I think even on the afternoon of January 6th, I denied it was a coup. Um, I've actually come around on that and and accepted uh, the sense that it analytically it makes more, most sense to think of January 6th as having been a failed attempted self-coup because I don't know what else to call it. Clearly, Donald Trump wanted there to be a coup. Now, it, it was it close to being more than failed? No as you say, like a real coup to succeed needs buy-in from elites, the military uh senior political officials uh especially but especially the military um and that was nowhere near happening, so as we saw with all of the ridiculous uh, kind of court appeals that the Trump and his allies were attempting in the two months between election day and January 6th to kind of prove election fraud and judge after judge, including Trump-appointed conservative judges, just throwing those out of court. The judiciary did exactly what it's supposed to do, which means the institutions held. And that points to your later point about the solidity of consolidated democracies. So what you had was, was, in effect, the president of the United States behaving like a temper tantrum-fueled, uh, spoiled child running around trying to break things. And he wasn't able to break very much because the room was was padded, locked down, had had all kinds of safeguards to keep from any anything bad from occurring outside the confines of that temper tantrum room. Uh, And that's all very, very good. But the very fact that we had a president who tried it and was supported by a meaningful faction of his own party. you know, sitting here in a podcast, as usual, I don't have all all my papers and research things and tabs open as I would if I were writing about this. I believe the number is 164 members of the House. Uh, I don't recall the precise wor- wording for what they favored, but they uh, you said seven Republican senators didn't want to certify electoral votes in one state or another and 164 republicans in the house were in favor of raising more questions about the the vote in different states that i found at the time and continue to find incredibly disturbing because that means that the majority of the of the of the caucus of the republican party in the house of representatives was not accepting the legitimacy of a free and fair election without any empirical evidence to back it up. On the day after that vote took place the day after the people in that room had fled from a violent mob that had been whipped up by the head of their own party. All of that is extremely ominous because, again, One mark of a consolidated democracy is that crap like that doesn't happen in the first place. So, yes, the institutions held, but in most consolidated democracies, you don't have the temper tantrum-fueled toddler throwing a fit. And we had that along with a bunch of supporters. And ever since then, Trump has never backed down. Polls consistently show that a majority of Republican voters believe him, not the system that has stood up to say, no, Joe Biden won, that's very bad as well. Um, on the on the the kind of the bigger question about consolidated democracies and how much we have to fear, I don't know. I know the definitions that political scientists like Sam Huntington use to define consolidation and it's the two turnover test and some other things. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, I know the case for saying that Weimar Germany was not a consolidated democracy because it had only existed for a decade or so. And then you could maybe make the case that Chile under Allende wasn't consolidated because you know it's Latin America and they they always have lots of ups and downs and coup attempts and so forth, and it's rockier there than it is in the United States and in kind of northern European and North American democracies. But I would say that both of those are cases where you saw a you saw a liberal democracy in which a person is elected, and the end result was, I think, and actually this goes back to what I said earlier about my, my bigger fear being centrifugal forces uh, and huge swings of the ideological and partisan spectrum kind of ripping the country apart. In both cases, you can tell a story about the collapse of democracy in those places as precisely that, that in Allende's case, a guy who is quite far left wing wins wins the entirety of political power of his office while only winning one-third of the country's votes. And he governs as if he has a mandate from the whole country to do things that two-thirds of the population did not vote for him to do. And he refuses to stop, even as inflation is climbing, and the CIA is meddling in it and trying to create extra trouble for him. And the result was a coup in which you— had a dictatorship uh, put in power for a certain number of years with uh, Pinochet. And in the Weimar Republic as well, you see a series of elections that lead to collapsing governments and and then eventually uh, the National Socialists taking over while also winning about one third of the votes and then governing in a dictatorial way and using the reaction of the left to his assertion of power as an excuse to seize more power that kind of dynamic i'm alarmed as an american because there were things about that whole episode surrounding january 6th that remind me of those kinds of dynamics of of yeah and it even goes back and here you know here's where i really piss off the the left like I, I think the story of January 6th, in, in a deep sense, goes back into the summer riots where where left-wing protesters were permitted to, to make a real mess of a lot of cities, and the right was very, very angry about that, and... Um, I, I think there was a kind of reluctance on the center left among Democrats to criticize that violence. And that's the kind of thing that you that you again, saw in Weimar, where, like, you know, street violence from the left is met by street violence or, you know, I guess in the halls of Congress violence by the right. And then imagine if Trump had sort of even for a day or two seemed like he might be seizing power. You could imagine very quickly left wing protests erupting all over the country and violence. And then Trump trying to nationalize the National Guard and send in the troops as Tom Cotton advised him to do over the summer. And he sends them in an accident happens a bunch of people get shot by soldiers which inspires even bigger Uh, you see what i mean like i'm i'm very agitated as an american to have seen even the first couple steps of that say 15 step process that can lead to democratic breakdown happen in this country so that's yeah i'll I'll leave it at that let, yeah, me, let me just clear, jump in, Shadi,
0: before you, yeah, sure. just one really quickly. You know, the only thing I'd, I'd just add though, and and then, you know, I'd let the two of you just go at it, but just to, just torque it a little bit, Damon. Uh, in my mind, it's not the summer riots that did it, it's Russiagate that did it in many ways. That's ultimately where where a certain kind of sense of, of real, you know, half the country, the country's elite institutions convinced themselves that our president was installed by Putin. And I don't think I'm overstating that very much. This was a, I mean, to me was a very clear thing. We had Fiona Hill on a couple of, maybe like a year or so ago as well. In her book, there's a passage where she even talks about the fact that this was precisely the the wildest dreams the Russians couldn't have hoped to have succeeded as well as they did with their minor manipulations to actually... Instill that that level of mistrust between the parties and get the ball rolling on all of that crap. She absolutely, you know, it's in her book and says that. And you know, and to to make the point, obviously, it goes way back before Russia Gate. I mean, the the mutual sort of recrimination, the delegitimization, is a feature of our politics. Has been going on for a very long time. You know, one can trace it back to Pat Buchanan's speech in 92. I don't know how you want to, where you want to sort of the draw Bork the line. Hearing, the, the
1: Bork hearings. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, there, there are yeah. any number. So I agree, of course. I mean, I I, but I, 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 I,
0: I mean, I, I take your point that, you know, the, the last things I'll let Shadi react to that, you know, cause I think that's interesting how you guys parse these two things. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, that's why for me still, that's why I still sort of align with Shadi on this. It's, it's, you take the, 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 you don't have to take the the 20-year, 30-year view of it, but take the six-year view of, of, of politics and last And So it's not just going back the summer before. But this this the cycle of delegitimization to me starts with the just absolute disbelief of a lot of people. They can't imagine that a democracy would elect someone like Trump. That to, to me is so core to a lot of this sort of this this stuff is that like democracy is good, Trump bad. What's going on here? And that kind of thing leads to both the delegitization of the first election, and this kind of nasty revolt of the populists who say these people don't even think we have the right to vote. And that's the kind of logic that's that's pushing a lot of this. So sorry, I just wanted to jump that in because I didn't want to lose that point because I know you guys are going to be going on different things. So Shadi, go ahead and like. Well, look, I'm 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 glad you brought that up. I wasn't
2: really going to mention Russia Gate, but it is it is relevant, and I you know I've talked about it elsewhere that. Yeah, in my view, I largely agree with that, that the center-left never really, center-left slash-left never really came to terms with the legitimacy of Donald Trump's election. Um, It wasn't, yes, Hillary did concede all that was fine, but like deep down, there, I think Gate was basically an ongoing effort to delegitimize a democratically elected president. I mean, there's just no way to get around it from my standpoint. So I think that that poisoned the waters. And if we do wanna go back, obviously this isn't about a blame game and it doesn't justify the craziness of Republicans subsequently, but at least the Republic, like, the right wingers that I know were radicalized by Russia Gate, and they were also radicalized just more generally by what what they perceived as the the unwillingness of the so called deep state to allow Trump to actually express his ideological and and political preferences. Not just Trump, obviously, but the true believers around Trump. The idea here is that they their efforts were foiled every step of the way through the institutional setup of the US government and again i just i think that i do tend to take cultural power really seriously so the fact that the vast majority of america's elite and elite institutions saw the world in a particular way and saw trump as illegitimate and did whatever they could you know with their megaphones to delegitimize the trump presidency i mean all of that is relevant because it does set up what comes later so i don't know i mean
1: yeah it's you're you're absolutely right and it that is an under theorized aspect of of the trump years um i mean i know on the right they talk about this but uh you know, it, it it isn't just with Trump. I mean, Obama came in wanting to close Guantanamo Bay. And he tried for 8 years and it's still there. <laughs> Why? Well, because he would say start the process and they'd be like, "Yes, yes, Mr. President," and they'd leave and then they would say in the hallway, let's slow walk this you know we're, we're not going to do that we, we don't we, we don't know what to do with the people at Guantanamo Bay because we can't put them on trial because we don't want to release into the public record the the classified intelligence that we have on them and we we don't really have any other normal legal justification for holding them. so therefore we have to sort of just keep these couple dozen people in this limbo forever and i know obama doesn't want to do that he's a good guy but we we can't let that happen so we're not going to let that happen you think the president's the most powerful guy in the world he is in some ways but you know um i i i get troubled sometimes when i hear uh, you know, stories at the time and, and even sometimes there are other, you know, new revelations about how, you know, Trump would say, let's do this in foreign policy and, and and then the generals would leave the room and then nothing would happen. Just nothing at all. And they would hope he'd just forget about it. And because he's Trump, you know, two thirds of the time he would. But then he'd remember, like nine months later, and be like, Hey, why didn't we do this? And they'd say, Oh, we're working on that, Mr. President, and then they leave and Mike Milley goes, We're not gonna do that because Oh, we got got to keep the troops in Afghanistan. Now, Biden was able to get out of Afghanistan because he and his team know more about how to actually make them do it. That's right. (laughs) Whereas Trump, Trump was a buffoon and he was surrounded by people who were like two thirds not with him on those those things. So. You know, they would. They would. You know, confirm to Millie outside of the room. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. We'll we'll talk them out of it. Don't worry about it. We'll handle it. Um, And you know, that does raise interesting and troubling sometimes questions about well, who who really is running this country <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not so much the deep state it's just i mean that makes it sound more like hidden than it really isn't it it isn't it's you can look them up the people who work in the executive branch <laughs> yeah and arguably, the so-called arguably, adults
2: adults yeah, in the room i mean people right. loved using that phrase for years it was contrary to the democratic spirit to see things oh thank god we have adults in the room who can constrain the will of those deplorable people who voted for Donald Trump and and so on. But I think this has gotten so little coverage that I actually don't even remember what happened. I vaguely recall seeing a couple articles about it and then it was memory hold. Wasn't there something about a top American general who gave the Chinese a heads up saying, I can't even remember what it was because no one really covered it. Do you guys know what I'm talking
1: about?
0: vaguely
1: uh yeah i was it was during i don't remember what episode it was but yes i remember a story about somebody letting china know that something that trump was on and on about like don't worry like that's that's not gonna happen yeah Uh, the fact that we
2: can't even remember this is incredible i'm just so it wasn't a big
1: story if it if it had been reversed ideologically it would have been but that's crazy right
2: the fact that um a top u.s military officer would do a run around the president and warn a competitor a challenger like china i Adversary, mean it's just it's remarkable to use the words, yeah
1: yeah exactly enemy, Rival enemy. Enemy. Adversary. yeah and just yeah. to
2: make sure that i'm not imagining this i so he i just pulled up an article and the headline seems to confirm that this was actually real and i'm not just imagining it it's from nbc news legitimate uh you know <laughs> I mean, not like a far right. Look, know, look for the
1: correction at the bottom. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. it says
2: Millie. It said uh, Millie, referring to General Millie, acted to prevent Trump from misusing nuclear weapons. War with China book says. So yeah, there, yeah that was in was his
1: something. book. It was some some story in his book. Yeah. No, I yeah, think yeah, oh, yeah, Would you referred to something um, earlier though? I
0: think something like this happened pretty early. Oh, I don't know. Let's not, no. This yeah. is days before
2: the 2020 election, um, where Milley, General Milley called the head of China's military and told him basically, "Don't worry," quote unquote. We are not going to attack. If oh yeah, if we're oh, this, he's quoted as saying, "If we if we are going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise." Right. That's remarkable. And I just want to, you know, I think that we'll include a link to to some of the, the coverage that it did get, um, including this article. If people want to learn more about it, that's remarkable to me. And actually, anyway. it, in a
1: weird way, it reminds me of uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, except instead of Kennedy calling the shots and having back channel conversations with, with the Soviets, it's it's Millie having back channel conversations with the chinese to go around the president <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's right. I, I mean the way it happened in the cuban missile crisis is the way it's supposed to happen and this this is not the way it's supposed to happen but yeah. you know but, it is part of me i'll just i'll just be straight up part of me
2: i remember when i would hear things about the military doing end runs around trump my my instinct was to feel that this was good. Early on, I was actually very happy that folks like General McMaster, um, uh, Chief of Staff Kelly, were around the president constraining him because I don't want like any like normal, not crazy American doesn't want to see Trump doing crazy shit when it came to like, I don't know, invading, you know, I don't know what it would be like invading Iran or something. Like, well, I guess. Well, he was against that. And then no, he was, just, anyway, I mean, that's not a good the policy
0: exam. preferences were dismantling <laughs> NATO, and that's what drove people nuts. Like, no, be <laughs> yeah, fair exactly. to that. Like, you know, when, when he said launch cruise missiles at Syria because of all the beautiful dead babies, he was, he was like, yeah, launch, let's go, guys. So, I mean, that was never an issue there. To be fair to that, Trump was thwarted in... In going against the military more often than not not in was informed yeah. from starting on but I wars. personally
2: don't want us to dismantle NATO. I'm pro-NATO me too and I'm hawkish on some of those things so sure. I like some of these outcomes that there were these hawkish figures around him who were preventing him from going too far on some of these so-called isolationist ideas. but from the level of principle, if we are in fact committed, to procedural democracy, irrespective of that substantive outcomes it produces, we gotta stay consistent and we gotta hold the line. So I have to I go agree. against my- I agree, I my- agree.
1: During, during the, the, some of those earlier episodes, I mean, uh, I wrote at the week and my colleague there at the time, Noah Millman, uh, who's uh, a, a very smart kind of self-taught realist analyst of these things, we, we both wrote columns that, sort of said like you know you can applaud the outcomes in these cases but what we are seeing here is cooish behavior from the center like you could imagine like what we're seeing is is a kind of right of liberalism republican so like not center right but like a little outside normal center right so he's sort of uh, I, don't, I don't like the term isolationist because it's inevitably polemical but but clearly in the I I can't even say realism and restraint because he wasn't really restrained either. He simply, he simply, you know, he was okay bombing Iran if it meant, uh, you know, killing a bad guy. And then and then. uh, But he wanted to pull out of NATO. And, you know, first he was talking about missiles flying to North Korea. Then Kim Jong-un's his best friend. You know, he was just crazy, just like no real strategic thinking at all. But he was the elected president. And the idea that the really scary thing is that he was so seemingly like crazy and unpredictable and dangerous in some of those especially early incidents that one could imagine him giving an order and the generals around him just saying we're not going to do that sorry and that is in not in not in a fudging way a coup because they're the ones who now uh, you know have sovereignty (laughs) and um and and that would have been applauded by the mainstream media and the Democratic Party. They would have been very <laughs> pleased about this. Yes. And and when when you're in a situation like that, that's bad. <laughs> it's you know, it's like, like, yay, we had a coup. The generals are in charge. Like, what? Why are you happy about this? <laughs> because yeah. you assume that they'll hand power to a Democrat next.
2: And um, it's also that the center left now apparently loves... The domestic intelligence agencies, like whether it's the FBI or just the national security state, and I have my profound disagreements with former guest um, Glenn Greenwald, but I do think he has a he has a point on this, that there's something kind of ironic that you know, the center left is embracing these things. Um, I mean, I did
1: did want to just briefly on that. I mean, I agree that it's certainly noteworthy. I would say it's best to understand it as a kind of reversion to kind of immediate post-war, early Cold War center left liberalism because they were there before. I mean, the Democrats were in charge through a lot of that period, and they were all pro-FBI and overseeing the CIA and starting the CIA and launching it on its way, doing what it did. Um, the
2: good old days.
1: Yeah. And so what you ended up seeing is because of the Vietnam War and the counterculture influencing the Democratic Party, is it moved away from that toward a more skeptical position toward those institutions. And now because of in reaction to the right, uh, they're like right back in there. So what, what Glenn is is lamenting uh while pr- pr- you know arguably troubling is, is certainly not unprecedented it's yeah. more a return to form and meanwhile the republicans are you know circa 1920 um,
2: if- but but it does get to this deeper concern that no one is really committed to procedure procedural democracy as is everyone is preoccupied with outcomes if the outcomes are good then we like the process and both sides Are doing this in a profoundly unprincipled way, but I do want I I do want to pose a question to you, Damon. And the reason I bring this up is only because I was at a far right party in D.C., which I don't actually don't go to many of them. But um, I was I think me and another person were the only center left, but some of the far right people there were actually agreeing with John Jonathan Shade's criticism of me. So Jonathan Shade, not to get into like an intramural thing. But Jonathan Shade um, called me center right, and I was, you know, I was kind of pissed about it, even though I liked the rest of the article. And then it was funny that I'm at this party, and they're like, "Shady, you know, maybe you have to just concede that the main pole of disagreement in American politics is cultural and identity based, and religion based, and on those cultural issues, putting aside your economic commitments and support for Bernie style." Policies on certain things, on the cultural stuff, you're closer to us. They were trying to bring me towards them. It's an interesting debate, but. Um, you don't, you don't but, have
0: to go to far right parties for that. I give, I tell you that all the time, Shadi.
2: <laughs> yeah, true, true. Good point. But more to the point, would they? So I was, um, without giving too much away about this party, um, the birthday party. Uh, not a political party. <laughs> I,
1: I, would, I would love to hear more about this party off, off mic.
2: <laughs> yeah, as, as someone who as someone who writes about the eyes on the right, you would have really enjoyed your time there, I think. I'm but sure. What, but what's interesting is that they were saying, Shadi, so I was telling them, guys, I'm critical of my own side, i.e. the Democratic Party. The concern that I have about right-wing populists and the far right, and it makes me nervous... I don't pay as much attention to it because I think that most people who I'm writing to in mainstream venues already assume that the right and far right certainly are bad. And so part of what I see my role as as a writer is to not repeat things that people already know. It's sort of like how I felt about the post 9-11 discourse where I, after a while, I just came up with a policy of not condemning terrorist attacks. Why? Because it should go without saying that I'm against terrorism as an American. I shouldn't have to start off everything I say with, oh, I hereby condemn this attack and then pivoting to whatever my actual point is. Similarly, when I'm criticizing my own, like my own tribe, I don't think that I have to preface that with, oh, the Republicans are evil. And then I can go and talk about Democrats. So just like that's a personal thing in terms of how I prefer to argue. I don't want to I don't want to just repeat things that everyone else is already repeating, right? Uh, yeah, so there's that. Anyway, they what they said to me when I, w- when I was pushing them, like, hey guys, are you committed to respecting Democratic outcomes that are not to your liking? Which might sound like a weird thing to actually say at a birthday party. But
1: um <laughs> not in DC. Not a, it not in con- a, it's not at all weird in a DC birthday. Party. Yeah, exactly. True, <laughs> true.
2: Yeah. Um, anyway, it was in context, like other. And people what did they ver- say?
1: Did, did did they say? Oh, of he course.
2: Said, no, no. That's that was what was concerning. They're like, well, let's be straight up with you, Shetty. This is why a lot of us have lost faith, is because even if we win democratic elections the broader system the broader regime apparatus the power of the center like all of these things are basically (laughs) yeah the cathedral as they sometimes call it all of these things are basically stacked against us so even if trump won another time or someone like trump won we're losing faith that our policy preferences would ever be reflected in government. And then the whole list of things, like, you know, let's say that we, um, th- they obviously have a major complaint about the, um, the Supreme Court, obviously not now because now it's, you know, in their favor, but like how over over many decades, things were not allowed to to play out through the democratic process on the state level or even on the national level. And the judiciary basically made, um, you know, in a somewhat activist way, decided that certain things would be the way they are. They read into the Constitution a right to privacy that was not explicitly or literally there, all those things. So I think that over time, like when you feel that you're so powerless, that you don't have a voice and even just being there and talking to some of these people, they are so weak politically and culturally, they are like legitimately weird. And so they're naturally going to incline towards anti-regime agitation because they feel like there's no other way. We have not given them any legitimate avenue through which to actually participate fully in politics. We constrain them every step of the way, even when they win. And I'm just saying, I'm not saying that I agree with this, but I didn't I don't know exactly what to say to it. I don't think that justifies not being committed to procedural democracy because the only other option is violence and coercion. And that can never be justified in my view. America is still a democracy and you can live anywhere. You can live in an actual authoritarian state if you wanna say that, oh, American democracy is a fiction and we actually are living under authoritarian rule. Bullshit, we're not. Um, But when they make these more specific complaints, You know all i can really tell them is you have to fight within the system and you have to believe in american democracy
1: this this is what i would say and do say to those kinds of arguments win more votes you know why did liberals on the supreme court Behave the way they did and have the power to behave the way they did through the middle of the 20th century, even down into the last couple of decades until fairly recently. Well, in the 1930s, the Democrats controlled veto proof majorities in both houses of Congress, and they controlled the House all the way down to 1994. (laughs) And the fact is that we you know there are lots of different kinds of democratic institutions the ones in our country quirky as they are have at the top of the judiciary the judiciary we have this institution and the way it ends up working with the supreme court is it is democratically accountable but with a huge lag (laughs) because there are appointments for life and there are only nine of them so What you had was an overwhelming consensus in American politics for decades through the 20th century that center left liberalism was what the country wanted. And that had an influence on the Supreme Court that that still lingers on to this day. But beginning with Ronald Reagan, you started to have a more robust showing for the center right. Then you had the, the Gingrich Revolution in 94, and since then, the Republicans have held control roughly half the time. Senate has been in Republican control a fair, fair amount of the time. You've had Republicans winning. Republicans have played hardball with the court, with McConnell refusing to seat Garland. You you had ba- really bad luck with you know deaths happening when they did. So Trump gets to appoint three in four years when Bill Clinton appointed only Two in eight years. So, like, you combine luck with the overwhelming. Um, kind of political support for the two parties, and the end result is the Supreme Court is only now starting to reflect this shift toward the right that you started that you started to see in 1980, and it's going to continue because now you have a bunch of young justices who are conservatives, and they're going to be there for a while, and it's inevitable that a Republican's going to win again, and they're going to appoint more, and and so. My my thought is that they need to calm down and they need to accept that if they want to make those much more fundamental changes, they have to win more votes. It is true. I, I never have said otherwise than that. Donald Trump won legitimately in 2016, but it matters that he lost the popular vote by nearly 3 million. And it matters that in 2020, he came within less than 100,000 votes of winning in the Electoral College while losing the popular vote by 7 million votes. That too is very bad for that centrifugal problem that I keep bringing up because it means that a... A, a politician who stands f- sort of outside ideologically the mainstream to the right is has 100% of the power of the presidency, at least on paper, while he can't manage to win even a plurality of the popular vote, let alone a majority. So my attitude is always when it comes to, say, DeSantis and the future prospects for the Republican Party, my, my line is this. Personally, I will never vote for Ron DeSantis. I think he's an ugly politician who feeds really nasty prejudices and is has no compunction about doing all kinds of things that I find very unpleasant. And that's not the kind of country I want to live in. However, if he's going to win, I pray he wins 52% of the vote. I'm picking that arbitrarily. It could be 50.1 percent of the vote. If we're going to have right-wing populism win, it needs to really win so it can say this is what the country wants. So what we what the problem that we're having, Shadi, and your your emphasis, which I appreciate, on outcomes versus procedure, is a disconnect to some degree because of this. Somewhat cockamamie electoral college system that we have, and how its tendency to amplify the power of un- less populated, less densely populated states over densely populated states, and the interaction of that fact with the makeup of the two electoral coalitions of the parties, such that that such that you end up with. Uh, it seems repeatedly since 2000, when it happened by only a microscopic amount with Bush, you you have this growing gap where the Republicans can win the power, but but aren't without winning an actual governing majority in public opinion in the country as a whole. So I pray, you know, again, my, I, I would rather. Desantis and every other Republican like that would just plain lose by a decisive amount in both the popular vote and the electoral college. But if the Republicans are going to win, they really, really should win. And and you know that's where you know it comes back to Orbán and Hungary and my own very mixed feelings about him. And and you you gesture toward that Shadi earlier that like we agree that. Yes, he's meddling with the media. He has a thumb on the scale for his own party, the Fidesz party. But as we're well aware, the Democratic Party has its thumb on the scale in this country, not through anything it's like actively doing, but just because the people who run media organizations are sympathetic to the Democratic Party. And so they sort of semi-unconsciously tilt in that direction so they have an advantage that republicans don't have um but so the problem but the problem we have then in hungary is yes he has a bit of an advantage but he does keep winning comfortably and i don't see anything illegitimate about the gerrymandering that gives the fidesz party you know two-thirds in the legislature, even though he's only won 53% of the vote. That's normal. It happens in the UK. It happens in most countries. We design these institutions to create the illusion of more of a mandate than there really is if you just look at the sheer uh, numerical outcome. And that's that's a good thing. But in our case, in this country, we, unlike all the other, whether you're talking about Maloney in Italy or Bolsonaro in Brazil, and that's its own issue with what happened last weekend, with their own January 8th event. But everywhere you look where right-wing populist parties have have come to power, they've actually won. (laughs) Whereas in our country, there's always an asterisk next to it. It's like, yeah, he won, but only because the rules allow someone who doesn't really win a majority to, to actually hold power. And those are the rules. So it is a legitimate win. But it's incredibly fraying of the political fabric of the country, that that keeps happening. And I pray that it stops happening. And I think that's 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 a good
2: message. And that actually offers up something that I can say to folks going forward. And maybe we can even invite one of these far right people and push them hard on this. If you guys want to win, win properly, persuade enough people, and then you'll have a mandate and then complain if you get thwarted every step of the way then, yeah. then you'll have me, a stronger
0: Let, let, let me just argument. throw one, just like a small, just it's not a wrench, because I think everything you say is sound, Damon. The only thing is, I'd say is, is, it is the question of uh, of normativity and call it the normativity, a political normativity um, of values. And this points to Shadi's sort of outcome dependent stuff. Because uh, the fact is, you know, um, you know, I, I think Orban's actually. We didn't even mention. it. I think there's a lot of corruption that goes on in that country. You know, it, it's it's very self-serving, machine politics. I mean, deep sort yep. of looting and all sorts of things. Um, nevertheless, you know, uh, this is not the the sort of campaigns within the EU, for example, which uh, shares and sort of channels a lot of the values that I think a lot of our liberal internationalists in this country also share, uh, who align very much with Democrats. They are primarily outraged, uh, and Orban himself gives them, I think willingly and knowingly, um, chum to get them even more frothy in this because it helps him because it feeds the outrage cycle, but they, they really dislike and feel like what he stands for much more than this procedural stuff is a threat to the core values that represent our society. And, you know, I mean, again, I it's, it's, None of this is new in our democracy. I mean, you go and 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 look at 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 what was being written about and how how Nixon was being talked about then, and sort of um, the 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 history of American politics since Nixon. But I mean, going back since since the founding is it's it's ugly, it's vituperative, it's delegitimizing. There's a lot of that that goes on all the time. Nevertheless, there's something and maybe it's always been like that maybe it's it's wrong to say that it's shifted but there's something about that normativity right now in this moment and again i say this i don't know i i i i i'm not really partisan i don't feel like i belong to a party i'm not particularly conservative personally um these are not my things but i really i always react to this values based approach very negatively this kind of normativity around values and making that a political thing it it both personally turns me off and worries me as well, you know, for all the reasons we've discussed about the sort of radicalization, delegitimization of of these sorts of things. So, which is all to say that, that, you know, um, I wonder if you are right that if there was a 51 or a 50.5 win for DeSantis, um, and then he proceeded to rule even with that minor legitimacy, though technical as it is, but still in an all-out attempt to really do culture war, whether you not have like a really serious sort of pushback to it and not acceptance, because those values are held to be somehow illegitimate. Well, um, yeah, that I- there's a there's a connection between minimal democracy in a lot of heads and liberalism and so yes we are liberal democracy and therefore but you know this is where Shadi parts ways with a lot of people right between minimal democracy and sort of liberal democracy and all the values that are attached to it well, well I, I don't know, maybe I, yeah. i'm not being empirical enough on this and you know people will say well you know if trump had won again and you know if he won 51 percent, well you know that would be that you just have to sort of abide by it no, I'm just no, not, but
2: it I, wouldn't I, be no, that I, would there's be, no way it would have been that demir so i just want to
1: no I, and, but you know, i do think there's a distinction i do think that what you're say 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 DeSantis wins fifty two percent, and so mm-hmm. no way that you can say anything other than he's the legitimate winner. He won a majority of the American people's votes. And he then does what you described, which I think is what he would do. He would govern further right than any president than we've ever seen. Sure. And that For would sure. be very controversial. Democrats would be livid. They would say all kinds of nasty things about it. But I would still think that it would be normal politics in that you can't have politics without normal, you know, normative claims that politics is, and I'm an Aristotelian on this, it's, it's a contest over what we think the good life is. And the reason American politics feels very kind of f- fractious in this era is because the kind of mid 20th century consensus that we were all sort of reared in, even if we're younger, than having actually lived through most of it, but like we grew up in a world in which the the story was being told by the people who grew up in that world. We sort of expect that like, well, the parties overlap and the number of things that they disagree strongly about is relatively small and we agree about most things that really matter where the rubber meets the road and and fights over politics are about, do we raise taxes a little bit or do we lower taxes a little bit? Do we increase a little spending or do decrease a little spending. Very kind of in the scheme of things, politically trivial stuff. But we're past that now. We're in an era where we have the bimodal distribution on ideology and the parties. They don't overlap nearly as much. And so You know, ideally, I would say if you really want to be Ron DeSantis and throw the wheel to the hard right, it would be much better if he had 60 percent of the vote like Nixon had in 72 or Johnson had in 64 when he did The Great Society. That's the kind of mandate you want to see if you're really going to kind of lurch to one side. We're not going to get that. Um, But 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 the opposition of Democrats to that loud and rancorous as it is would still be what I call normal politics because they would effectively be saying this is terrible vote for us next time to kick that bastard out of office. And that is different than saying Donald Trump isn't really the legitimate president because. He lost the popular vote and Russia put him in there and all of these things that make it seem as if he shouldn't even be in the White House Um, that and or Trump then saying four years later, Biden didn't win because actually they cheated they they lied and said that he won, but I really won. Those are both different versions of delegitimization arguments, and that's a kind of meta politics. That's where the system gets sort of implicated as being corrupt, and that's far more dangerous, I think, as a as a political proposition.
2: That, that's interesting because I think Damon, you're you're a bit more optimistic than I am about what happens with a clear DeSantis victory at fifty one or fifty two percent or even to put a finer point on it, if Trump wins in 2024 by a clear enough margin in the the popular vote, unlikely obviously, but anything is possible. Let's say Trump wins 51 or 52%. The notion that liberals would then accept that as legitimate, I don't think that's likely, But even with DeSantis, because if you are, let's say you're a hardline liberal values person, by definition, you're going to prioritize liberal values over procedural democracy. If the two are in tension, you're going to see certain things as supra-democratic, that regardless of what the majority wills, there are values, they're universal, they're non-negotiable, and one must uphold them no matter what. I mean, that's, I think there are a lot, you know, I think a lot of left of center people basically, even if they don't put it in those terms, that is basically where they come out.
1: Well, yeah they, they believe, question. yeah, they believe that you sh- uh, Republicans should not be allowed to do a whole bunch of stuff that Republicans yeah. want to do. And their claim is that actually, no, you shouldn't be able to have a Democratic debate about whether a woman can get an abortion. It should be just that you can get an abortion and we don't have politics about that issue. Yeah. Whereas the right says, no, we do have politics. And I think if we do, we'll win. And I, in general, you know, that's one of many any kind of subtle ways, maybe, in which I I am more sympathetic to the Republican side of these arguments. That like I didn't want Roe v. Wade to go down because we'd had it for 50 years and I I thought it would be very corrosive to to have it go down. But I was in favor of a reading of Roe and Casey that would have allowed a, a fair amount of regulation of abortion, even while it stood. So um in general i believe that like it's better for our society if more questions are are like decided in the political arena rather than the meta political arena which is what the court is is doing when the supreme court says actually you can't debate that anymore it's now at this higher level kind of Interwoven with the regime and its principles, and so you can't you can't debate that anymore. I think that the number of things about which that is true should be very small. Um, yeah, but isn't that isn't
2: that demon that I don't want to exaggerate here? But that is basically the mainstream left of center posture, which is all these things should not be subject to debate. It's a profoundly anti. It is basically anti-democratic in spirit. I think there is, this is animating. I think this is very mainstream. And and the fact that, I'll just say, well, maybe Israel is worth bringing up before I forget, because you did take me to task, Damon, for-
1: Well, not really. I, said I, like, I've just used it as a kind of as a counter example. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, but I do, What you know, I think there's a similar debate here too, that let's say you have an extreme example of a far-right religious party becoming more unrestrained in government and you don't have- Netanyahu tempering them, and you're you're in quite a situation when you rely on Benjamin Netanyahu to be a moderating force in your government.
1: Well, yeah, but if and, you have Ben Gavir in there, that's where you are.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but I think that you can't. So you said like, what happens if this, these far right parties actually try to make Israeli Arabs into second class citizens? Although I would argue they already
1: are. They already
2: are. But that is, and we and for. Folks who want to catch up with this, we had a fascinating episode with Robert Nicholson on precisely this question of um, Israel as an ethnic democracy and to what extent that should be permitted. But unfortunately, and I hate it, I hate this outcome substantively, especially as an Arab and a Muslim, but far right Israeli politicians do have the right to believe that Arabs and and Jews in Israel are not 100% equal. And like I said, that's already the way it is in Israel anyway. Um, my, my dividing line is that you can't disenfranchise Arab voters. So if you take away their right to vote, then you're not even meeting the minimal threshold of democracy because people still have to have the right to vote for alternatives. But it's similar to what someone might say about Trump or DeSantis that... If DeSantis wants to restrict abortion and he works, he works towards those kinds of outcomes that he's basically treating women as second class citizens. I don't agree that I don't agree with that argument, but it is an argument that I heard a lot around the time that Roe was overturned. So you can, you know, the the question is, do democratically elected leaders have the right to make certain groups into second-class citizens, whether it's Muslims or whether it's women. Again, we're not talking about taking away their right to vote, but we are talking about things that, according to some people, seemingly seemingly make them less fully equal, if that Mm. makes sense. Yeah, but in the I, end, that, yeah. that's a right. Th- yeah.
1: No, no, you're right. It's uh it's a hard question. I guess I would just go back to uh the point I made before that I still I still think that now I'm, I'm not making a prediction about how de- you know any individual Democrat will react, would react hypothetically to say a fifty-two percent DeSantis win that then's followed then followed by, you know, very right-wing policies being enacted. Um but I do think that that it's okay for Democrats to respond to that in a really like raucous, nasty way. They're going to say horrible crap. And they, but the, the point will be to try to make the case that the next election, they should vote the bastard out. And we, the Democrats should be put in to reverse all this terrible stuff that they're doing. And I do think you know, I do think that the very fact that a DeSantis in this hypothetical wins 52 will take some of the wind out of the sails of the more extreme rhetoric simply because, I mean, I think what you would see is a hell of a lot of demoralization among Democrats. A lot of them would be truly shocked and shocked in a way that they were not by Trump winning uh, because both because he lost the popular vote, which made them think that really the system is screwed up. We got to get rid of the electoral college or later. Oh, actually it was Putin did it or Comey did it or like whatever. Like there was always some deus ex machina that made this terrible thing happen. Anything other than the American people actually wanted this guy to be president. Um, And, and that was always muddied because actually you know, however many two million more people wanted Hillary Clinton to be president than wanted Trump to be president, so they could always tell themselves that that like he didn't really win. And can so they this, still say
2: that with like voter suppression or something no, like that? But I they think might, the but, but if,
1: Yeah, if you get to a certain yeah, level I'm, of victory, it becomes really kind of absurd.
0: And and just one other argument in in favor of what you're saying, Damon. Um, you know, you alluded to it, but the 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 truth is. Um, and it's why I continue to think that the Roe decision was the correct one. It's it's motivated Democrats and they've taken it to the elections. Uh, and they've caught up to it much faster than Republicans have. Republicans are still in rights land talking about the right to life and nonsense like that. Now that the pro-choice side has realized that this is an electoral issue, they're winning elections on it. They're not, they're not talking about it in terms of rights anymore. They're, they talk about it in terms of rights, we'll restore women's rights on this when we win elections. But they're not talking about it in terms of this is a transcendental right that needs to be imposed. They really are doing politics around it. Right. Which, again, and it'll you know, be interesting to see is, on, on yeah. that
1: issue. It'll be interesting to see if that continues to work for them because, um, sure, you know, in my view, the Democrats would be smartest if they would try to pass a national, def- uh, they can't do it now because they lost the House, but like to pass... A national defense of abortion rights that basically limits the right to the first trimester and then allows states right. to uh, to adjudicate it in the second two trimesters, and that would be kind of in the sweet spot for public opinion. But of course, no, of course, we live in our bimodal moment, and so the Democrats want to pass something that'll keep abortion legal all over the country for all the entirety of presidency and if the republic uh, for the entire pregnancy and if the republicans get in charge they're going to try to ban it you know for the you know from from the moment of conception which is neither of which is where public opinion is on that issue which itself shows that there's something a little broken about our politics that somehow and this is pervasive throughout the democratic world a kind of sense that somehow our institutions are not reflecting uh, public opinion in an adequate way that it's somehow not working. And that, that to me though, again, it's just,
0: it's, it's something I was thinking while you guys were going back and forth though. And this comes back to my question of normativity. And again, this is why the judiciary is so important. It's, it's, it's the problem of rights and, you know, basically, um, legislating too much from the bench on a lot of this stuff with recourse to rights. This is what bedevils Europe in a big way on the mm. European Union level more than anywhere else this concept that that you know there are these non enumerated rights and again you know the, the 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 thing for me when i think about the enumerated rights the only reason they're holy is not because they're transcendentally holy it's because they're actually enumerated someone wrote them down and we believe this document that's it they don't have any bigger transcendental like truth than that and so once you really reify rights and start thinking this is what it is, and we have access to what these things are that's basically depoliticizing questions that are inherently and should be political um yeah. and
1: it's it's I mean, it's even worse. I mean, it's worse. I mean, we have a. Actually, I think saying there are unenumerated rights is a kind of check on that tendency. The worst thing is when, you know, a, a new country a country tries to do a new constitution and they want to like li- have, make it be fifty pages long with all the rights right. listed there, which constrains politics in all those directions, so that you can't really. Do politics on anything, uh, but by the way, guys, it's uh, I, I'm going to have to run yeah. like within Time five to minutes run, here. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. No well, I'll,
2: maybe I'll just I just I'll just say a final word. Okay. And this, you know, not to offer up a, a homily or anything, but I do want to say that um, what you were saying towards the end there, it makes me think that there is a wisdom to the crowd, and <laughs> in their own, own eyes, absolutely. <laughs> 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 but I think we're also sort of saying, or at least I think this is the case. Um, a lot of people are crazy, but most people are not crazy. At least they're not crazy more than more than one election at a time. Like there is sort of this return to sanity that seems to naturally happen in democracies. I don't want to. I don't want to like rely too much on that. But, you know, I am reassured by the fact that a large majority of Republicans believe in the big lie, but the overwhelming majority of them didn't take to the streets and take up arms. Or If you really thought that democracy was ending, if you really thought that the election was literally stolen from Donald Trump, that would mean the end of American democracy as we know it. And if you really thought that, then anything would be justified then because, I mean, you have to save democracy. I mean, it's gone. It's it's we're under authoritarian rule. So, I mean, I think that rhetoric and what people say to pollsters when they say crazy shit and then the way they actually act in their ordinary lives, there is a sort of wisdom of the ordinary voter in this regard. Yeah, they just say that, oh, you know, well, it was the election was stolen from Donald Trump, but then they go about their ordinary everyday lives and they live as normal people who don't act outside of the law and you know listeners will know that um with the wisdom of crowds is meant to be ironic because we don't actually believe in the wisdom of crowds but sometimes we (laughs) seem like we do and part of this podcast is about that natural tension i think demir represents the more the more cynical view about people. And I sometimes, you know, I'm a bit of an ideologue when it comes to democracy. And well, maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good place to end things.
1: Absolutely, it is to me. And uh, thanks for having me on. This was a great conversation.
2: Thanks, Damon, really enjoyed it.
1: Always great. Bye. All right.
0: Okay.